Welcome to the Dover Download Podcast, your weekly look at what's going on in Dover, what's going in in Dover, and all things Dover-related. My name is Chris Parker, and I'm the Deputy City Manager here in Dover, and I'm going to walk you through all of that, plus more. I've probably said agnosium how long I've worked for the city. And in that time, I have had the pleasure of working with a lot of people that have meant a lot to me from a mentorship or coworker standpoint, but none of them exceed our guest today, which is Kathy Bowden, former director of the library. And I say that on a couple levels. One is she was the first person that hired me. And two, I wouldn't have met my wife without her. So I owe Kathy everything in my mind. And I welcome her today to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Chris's first job with the city was a library page, which is putting books away at the public library when I was employed there. And I was happy to hire Chris as a page, and he's gone on to great, great things beyond that. And I think that uh, at some point we'll have you back to talk about that. And uh, we were... As we were prepping for this conversation, we started talking about books and reading, which is something we have in common, and we'll, we'll have you back to talk about that. But today, what I'm hoping we can talk about is, is to continue our series looking at Dover's history and getting ready for our 400th anniversary of European settlement. And one of the things I think a lot of people certainly know you as the former director of the library, but most people also know that you're a local historian and that you've really not just put your toe into that world, but really waded in hip deep. And I think that you have a lot of stories to tell on that aspect. And that's what I'm hoping we can talk about today. Sure. One of the things we always start off with is sort of your history or something, what you would be comfortable sharing with the, the listener, your background, why, what you, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, what your profession was, but we've covered that already. <laughs> um, but whatever you're comfortable sharing with the listener. Uh, sure. Well, I grew up um, with a mother who was a librarian. And when I graduated from the University of New Hampshire with an English literature degree, and I thought, what am I going to do with this? And so I went to library school and got my master's in library science and came to Dover to work as the reference librarian in 1975, one of my duties was uh, to administer and help people in the library's historical room, which is a collection of between four and 5,000 items, books, pamphlets, photographs, maps, to research over history and genealogy. And uh, as an English major, and I hadn't maybe taken one History of England course in my life, I was not into history. Uh, I didn't dislike it, but it just wasn't my thing. So I immersed myself in the historical room, and I thought, this is kind of interesting. And I met, I would say, three gentlemen that kind of changed the course of my life. They were mentors to me, and they were Bob Whitehouse, Bob Marston, Tom Wells. And um, they involved me in what was called at the time Dover's Heritage Walks, which were walking tours of the neighborhood. So between their encouragement and my delving into the books myself and learning this sort of fervor for Dover history started to grow. I am really, really a local historian. Um, if you ask me, last week uh, I had a group in and we toured the history, the state house at the uh, in Concord, and I had never been in the state house before. So I learned a lot about the Senate and the House of Representatives and the third largest legislative body in the world. So this was all new to me. So I am not a historian. I am a local historian. So I know a lot about Dover, but not too much beyond its borders. Well, 
That's an interesting distinction because you can have the reverse where people are historians but have no knowledge of their local context and surroundings. I think it's, well, let me ask you, do you think it's more relevant to be a local historian or a historian? Boy, I don't know. I mean, historian has this kind of academic um, significance to it. And I am not an academic historian. I like researching, you know, local newspapers and old books and talking to people and getting oral history and things like that. I'm more of a on the ground historian, um, which I don't think is more important than an academic historian, but it's just a different flavor. When, uh, when I was in college, originally I was a political science major and then I was going to be a journalism, either double major or minor. And that petered out fairly quickly. Um, and I had the opportunity to start in what was called American studies. And the way it was explained to me is similar to what you just described is history. A history degree looks at who did what and when they did it and why they did it. American studies looked at how the people who lived at that time were impacted. So not necessarily Archduke and Ferdinand and why his assassination started World War One, but how the outcomes of World War One affected you and I, and and the, the boots on the ground people. It sounds like that's more your yeah. Maybe that's your, a good term for it. Instead of do- local historian or whatever, maybe Dover Studies would be a good, a yeah. good tr- term for me. So, in that vein, what is the era or time frame that you most appreciate in Dover history? Well, certainly for me, it's the mills starting. I would say, you know, well, they started in 1812, rudimentary. And then they opened their first mill in 1814. But the 1820s, I'd say, are what make me most proud of being of Dover. I I did walking tours this summer for the chamber, historic walking tours, an hour walk around downtown. And the way I describe it to people is, you know, when you look at the mills, when you walk through downtown, that is Dover's identity. That's why we had the three waves of immigration from the Irish, the French Canadians, and the Greek and Armenian people who came through. And that's why we have so many people of those ethnicities who have descended from those original. But the mills brought people to Dover. They employed people. People, you know, quote, raised themselves up by their bootstraps and got out of the mills and went on to become mayors and congressmen and whatever. But I was doing research in the Fosters, and when the mills closed in 1937, they were like, well, what are we going to do with them? So there was a big movement to tear them down. And in 1940, the city bought them for $54,000, I think it was, and decided to keep the mills. And the editorial in the newspaper was so great because it said, we may decide that this foretells our future more than we know now. And I'm thinking, wow, that was, you know, very prescient because now we look at them. And when I take people on the walking tour, I point at the mills. I tell them a little bit of the history. We had the first strike by women in the United States in 1828. Yay, Dover. And, uh... But when I take them downtown and I say, now look at the mills, and they look great, and they're now apartments that rent for, I don't know what, $2,000 a month, and everybody desires to live there, and there's a waiting list. But in the 1950s, they were pretty decrepit with, you know, small little companies, shoe shops and things in them. But you would come downtown, and you would walk down, and people would look up at the mills, and they'd go, oh, boy, my grandmother worked in those mills. Like, how horrific. And now... People walk downtown and they look at the mills all bright and shiny and symbolic. And they say, my great-grandmother worked in that mill. And they're so proud and so happy of it. So I think that's the evolution of Dover. It's based in the 1820s in that mill, that mill structure. The, the mills, 
you bringing that up reminds me when we did the the factory on fire, uh, and that was so educational and so much fun. Do you you see an opportunity to evolve the historic walks into something more like that, or has that really evolved into the Woodman's uh, graveyard? Yeah, walks? when we first did the reveal, reveals, they were they were for Dover Main Street, and we had great tours of the mills and reenactors. We reenacted the strike, we reenacted the famous fire in Mill Number One, and uh, we we did Garrison Hill, and we did the cemetery. And so now it's kind of evolved into, I'm involved with the Woodman Museum. I'm on the board there. So it's kind of evolved into a Woodman event. And we do voices from the cemetery, which we bring people back from the dead. And they stand at their graves and they tell people about their lives in sort of a a semi-historic way. We we take the basic facts, but we play with them. And the people have a conversation with the people in the audiences. So that's been kind of fun to keep that alive. And I think it'll go forward as long as I can still find good dead people to write about. (laughs) So you said that you've... You're doing the heritage walks with the chamber. How did those differ, or are they the same as the the walks you did with your mentors years ago? That I know, I remember going on the the uh, we had the booklet and, and yeah you, you yeah know. we we have um, thirty different booklets from different neighborhoods we've done in Dover. In fact, we're putting those together now in one big book. Oh wow! Um, kind of a flip bound, spiral bound thing for the four hundredth, so that people will be able to buy a copy and then walk around their neighborhood. And Andy Galt is very involved in putting yeah. that together, and uh, so we hope to have those because now when we t- want to find a house, we have to go. What booklet was it in? And mm-hmm. so it. So it's going to have an index. It's going to be wonderful. We'll have that available next year for the 400th. But those walks were really people who lived in those neighborhoods with a few people outside of Dover coming to attend them. The ones I do at the chamber, it's interesting because I asked the crowd, um, crowd, it's maybe 15 people, um, when I do them, I say, how many of you have lived in Dover, you know, 10 plus years? How many five plus years? How many are visiting? How many? And um, it's amazing. It's mainly um, the newer people, people visiting or people who've been in Dover for fewer than like five years, three years, one year, something that, that just want to learn about their city. I don't see what we call the, the old timers coming to, to find out about stuff. Do you find that they've become more interactive as you've been doing them where people ask more questions or is it more of a passive um, walk where um, you're doing all of the. There are a lot of questions, much more so than um, when we were doing the neighborhood heritage walks, which was kind of passive. We would talk about each house and the history of it, who lived there, and things like that. And there weren't many questions. These um, sometimes the, my walks are different every time because the questions evolve the walk. So you know, I'll be talking about something about the mills, or talking about how the post office changed its entrance, or what was there before the Orpheum. Or you know, mm-hmm. we circle that big block, and that we should be calling Upper Square Franklin Square, yeah. and things like that. And well, why did it, was it named Franklin? And things just evolve. So um, I have a, a time limit of an hour and a half to get through the walk. So sometimes I have to be like that movie, movie, and go, "We're walking, people. We're walking. <laughs> we're walking," to get through in an hour and a half. But it's interesting. You you see these walks, and, and you and I, to different degrees, have lived here long enough that you've seen change and you've seen, uh, hopefully, evolution. Uh, my youngest brother was in town, and he hasn't lived in Dover in 10, 20 years at this point. He was in town for a, a bit uh, recently, and 
as he as I was taking him to to the airport, he said, "You know, I don't think Dover lost its feel." He said, "I, I come back." And I see a couple of different buildings and I see a couple of different things here and there. He said, but it's the same community it, we grew up in. It's the same Dover. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting uh, concept. And he said he went to a community to the south of us, which may or may not have the same uh, birthday. And uh, he said, now that community has changed. He said, that community is no longer violent and, and dirty. <laughs> he said, that is a, an upscale community. He said, but Dover, it's still Dover. Do you, you have any, what does that say to you? What, what, how does that? You know, that... there's sort of two schools of thought. You read things on Facebook that say, oh, Dover's not the same, and Dover's trying to be Portsmouth, or Dover's trying to, you know, Dover, the old Dover is gone. And I disagree. I think the old Dover is, is still there. I still see it. I see it in the people. I see it in the preservation of some of the buildings. Yeah, we're changing, we're growing, we're adding things, but I still have a Dover feel everywhere I go. And I think most people do too. Uh, I'm not opposed to change. I think things need to grow. I felt the same way in the library. When I started at the library, it was all about the card catalog. Hmm. And I, you know, now of course that's gone and it's all online. And hmm. whatever new thing is coming down the road, I, I sort of embrace change in technology. I don't like stagnation. So, hmm. but I think Dover is doing a really good job of it. One, one thing that was funny that he, he commented on, which I don't think most people will remember, other than I'll say it now, and the listener, if they've lived here long enough, will say, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. We were at TD Bank, and I forget what he was calling it because he, he was thinking 20 years ago. But he said, oh, it's so good that Harvey's took the aluminum foil or the <laughs> aluminum siding off the building. Yeah. And I thought, it's been so long since it's been gone. But, yeah, you know, that was such a mainstay, that, that yeah. white vinyl yeah. or aluminum siding they had for so I long. I think that was a Dover Main Street project. It was a Main Street project, project. And I yeah. I think we helped them get a grant. I was going to say, we, that we helped, helped them get a grant. Yeah. yeah, and that yeah. brought the facade back to the original brick merchant's yeah. row area. And, yeah. yeah, and that was that was a good thing. So. Yeah. Change can be good. Yeah, and it's funny to think back that that was okay. Right, yeah. That's the sort of old Dover that's gone that we should be like. Yeah. One thing I mentioned on my talks, my walks for the chamber is it used to be there was a phrase, um, Portsmouth by the sea and Dover by the smell. Well, people might not remember, but there was a tannery kind of in the area of the new parking garage uh, off Orchard Street. And Dover did smell bad, and there, were, there was these old mills, and the tannery was, you know, belching smoke and odors and things like that. And uh, so, you know, we've come a long way. From a historic standpoint and from your involvement in the, the, the local history, you wrote a book. Uh, how, what was that experience like? What was that? How did you transition into that mode from librarian? Is it natural because it's a book or? Well, I, I read so much that I, I really appreciate authors. And I, I said I would never have the skill or the talent or the ability to write a book. But um, as I mentioned, Bob Whitehouse was one of my favorite people in the world. And he uh, had been approached by Portsmouth Marine Society to write a book. And Bob was like, you know, I collect stuff and I have scrapbooks and I have notebooks and I have drawers full of photographs. He goes, but I am not a writer. So he said, what if we wrote it together? And I just, so because I loved Bob so much, I said, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll do it with you. So that's how I approached it. I had no desire to write a book. I had no intention of ever writing a book. But I went over and loaded up my car with all of Bob's scrapbooks and notebooks and 
boxes of things and put them in a spare room in my house and just started going through and going through. And it kind of organized itself that way into into chapters and I could see different topics uh, approaching, you know, dividing it into sections and things like that. So it took you know, like a year and a half, but all the stuff was there. I wasn't doing the research. I was just writing and pulling together. I, I was kind of the collaborator or the mm. contributor or whatever, but it was all things that Bob had collected and had written. Um, but he was, he felt he was you know, unable to pull it all together. So that's, that's all I did was just pull it all together. If you had to pick an overrated part of Dover's history, something we celebrate that maybe it's just not as. Not the thing you would point out. You mentioned earlier that the mill girl strike was something that we should we should celebrate, and I agree. But is there a is there a verse? Is there something that we talk about a lot that maybe just isn't as important as as we might make it up in our mind? You know, it's funny. There's controversy coming up next year on the 400th anniversary yeah. uh, of 1623. So there is controversy about the date of 1623, which, as you mentioned, the other city is yeah. celebrating as well. Um, that maybe we weren't founded in 1623 because no one has ever found the exact research that proves that or disproves it. And I know there's a book coming out next year that is called 1623 and, uh, it's, it's going to delve into some of that. So, you know, here we are. We're going to spend the whole year next year celebrating 400 years. And, um, you know, maybe it wasn't 400 years. Maybe it was 396 years. You know, we'll, we'll see. So it's not bad. It's just that we don't know. Yeah. Um, and I think it's great to have the 400 celebration because there's been 400 years plus, plus, plus of people living here. So that's what we're going to celebrate. So some of the indigenous people who were here before the white colonists arrived as well. But that's a little bit uh, touchy as to, you know, we say we're the seventh oldest city in the United States. And... Um, that may be true, but the date may be a little off. Yeah. So the flip side is the 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 mill strike. Is that our pivotal moment, or is there something else that people should know about that maybe we don't talk about enough? Is there another event? Is there another activity? Uh, I think the mill strike is is the one. But I think the decision of whatever city council that was in 1940 to not tear down the mills mm. is, and I don't know what the vote was. I've never researched who was on the city council at that time, but because the city bought the whole complex for that really cheap price. And then they were like, well, what are we going to do with it? You know, we could develop downtown or we could leave them there. And, and, and uh, the editorial has always struck me over the years as something that, boy, they really made the right decision. And that made Dover turn around because I think when you come into town and you see that remaining um, uh, steam tower there, um, you know, that's, even though it has cell phone things around it, um, it's sort of our, our identity as right. as a mill town, and I think that we need to embrace that. Um, I think probably the the worst thing was uh, all the people that were put out of work in 1913, I believe it was, when the Kachiko Printworks closed, and those were buildings that were down in Henry Law Park. Yep. Filled the whole park. There was right. no green lawn like there is today. And so they made the cotton in the mills that we still have. And then it was transferred across the street to the print works where the calico was colored, dyed, and the patterns were applied. And when that part of the operation moved down to Lawrence, Mass, to Pacific Mills um, in the early 1900s, I think 1913 to 1916, they tore down the buildings. So all 
800 people there lost their jobs, and they were told, well, you can go to Lowell and work, or Lawrence, but no one had cars at that point. There was no transportation to get down there. So that was really the low point, I think, when, when the mills limped along from the 1918 era up till 1937, and it was really like the low point, I think, in Dover's history. We're going to wrap up soon, but I'm curious. I had always understood, and, and I enjoy the education process, so I, it's good to, to, to know that what I understood was not the way it was, but I had understood that the city took the mills for back taxes, but you're saying we act, the city actually bought them. Like yeah, it was a proactive, yeah. it was a proactive activity as opposed to a. Well, they put, they put them up for auction and they advertised very widely throughout New England. And they, we have the actual poster in mm-hmm. the library of the auction poster. And it showed like a, I don't know how they got the picture, probably a plane flying over because they mm-hmm. didn't have drones yet, but they had overhead views of. Uh, that what the mill complex looked like and they had the square footage of each section and what was available and and not one bid not one bid on the whole complex so So city bottom do you have a sense for why in the 80s the city decided after 40 years of it was time to divest those structures i think because joe sartell and tim pearson had approached the city approached the city and had a great plan and you know they cleaned up all that green bilious paint that was inside they did all the brick repointing and they whitewashed everything they put in 700 new windows and all the new copper trim and the roofs and really the the thing that kicked it off was a little company called Liberty Mutual came and took up some office space in the mills and they grew and grew and grew and of course you know where where they ended up out right Sixth uh, Street. Street. And so, you know, it was like a little incubator for a lot of companies that made um, a big impact on Dover later on. But, um, you know, I think it was the Tim and Joe that, that had the vision and um, took the chance. Took the chance. That's great. So as we wrap up, uh, I always ask the guests, just as at the beginning, is there something you want to tell us uh, about yourself? At the end, I ask if you could identify uh, three things. It could be people, it could be places, it could be events, it could be activities, what have you, that you think makes Dover unique, what makes Dover Dover, why you continue to, to be involved in the community. What would you tell the listener? Well, one is the structures, the mills, the historic houses, the things that we've kept intact that we can still talk about that make people invest in this community and be proud to live here. I would say two would be the the people that I work with, um, whether it be at the Woodman Museum or on the Dover 400th Committee or at the Chamber. Um, everybody is does more than they need to do here, and I think everybody is invested in some cause or in some civic com- or community organization or in some church organization. Um, everybody seems to be really involved. And the the other thing, and I I don't know that this for a fact, but I keep reading that. Dover has a young demographic that lots of people are moving in with children and families and that other New Hampshire cities and New Hampshire in general are growing older. Yeah, we we are demographically, this community is about 10 years younger than the, the state average. We're, uh, we're 36 is the average age here in Dover versus 46 is the average in the state, which actually seems low when you look at town by town. Uh, there's a lot of towns that are, are much grayer than 46. Yeah. And I say that as someone at 35 that had gray hair. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, so I think that statistic tells an awful lot about 
people who live here, who people who move here, people who raise their families here. Yeah. And it's attributable to the amenities we have, the recreational activities, the school system. Well, it used to be the cost of housing, but now that's kind of shooting out of sight. But, um, you know, and you walk around on Apple Harvest Day or at the Voices from the Cemetery event or anything downtown, and you see a lot of young people, and you go out to a restaurant, and there's young people there. Um, one night I was up at Cinco de Mayo, and it was after 9 o'clock, and it, I forget what I was doing, but it was finally time to eat. And I went in, I'm like, oh, I'm out of place here. <laughs> it's, it's all like 20 and 30-something-year-old people, and like, oh, I guess this is the young crowd that comes out after I'm at home in bed. <laughs> well, I'd be the one home in bed, but that's good. I'm glad you were out. I, I can't thank you enough for coming in today. As I said earlier, I definitely want to have you back to talk about your career and talk about um, things of that nature. But I, I very much appreciate you taking the time today. And, and your local history knowledge is, is great. And I'm glad that the community has that as, as an asset. Thanks. It was fun. With almost 400 years of history, Dover's got a lot to tell. Up next, Mike Gillis is going to walk us through what happened this week. As New Englanders, we learn to live with winter storms that can drop heavy snow and knock out power. Occasionally, those storms cause heavy damage and outages that last for days, such as the ice storms in 1998 and 2008. But for the most part, we clear the snow and ice, the power is restored relatively quickly, and a cell phone keeps us connected. Storms of the past were much less easy to endure. One such storm happened this week in 1924. On November 29th of that year, a storm that brought strong winds and several inches of wet, heavy snow raged over Dover for many hours, blanketing everything in thick, heavy snow and sleet. But that evening, as temperatures plummeted, the wet snow froze to everything, including phone and power lines. By the time the sun finally appeared on Sunday, November 28th, the damage became apparent. Most of the city was without power and phone service. Hundreds of ice-encrusted poles and wires had been torn down and lay across the roads and railroad tracks, all but cutting off the city to travel. Twenty tons of new copper cables, which allowed phone service from Dover to Boston, were stripped from hundreds of poles along the line, cutting off communication. Because the local newspaper, Foster's Daily Democrat, depended on these circuits to receive wire reports of national and world news, the newspaper reported that it was unable to provide that news temporarily. Some of the worst wreckage to utilities occurred in neighboring Rollinsford, where the heavy ice knocked down 25 poles carrying 60 copper wires at the main line between Portland and Boston. The wreckage was so severe, eight truckloads of new copper wire to replace the damaged lines arrived on December 1st, but workers said it would take days or even longer to repair. The storm would be called one of the worst in New England and New Hampshire in 25 years. Its damage was widespread, knocking out phone service and power, and thousands of poles, across the region. Crews could be seen in Dover and across the state the day after the storm. But the repair work, which was a massive task, would take weeks, and longer in some cases, to complete, leaving many people without power or communication. Still, Dover endured. New Englanders know how to weather a storm. Thanks for listening to the Dover Download this week. If you like what you heard, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And if you have something you want to hear a topic on, let us know. Finally, this is just one of the many ways we share information about the city of Dover. 
You can subscribe to the Dover Downloads email newsletter every week or other newsletters that we have by going to the City of Dover homepage, www.dover.nh.gov. Have a great week.